Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. And so we're here in the studio today. We wanted to do a little bit of a refresher for ourselves and for you, the listeners, um, just to uh, to make sure we recalled all the important plot points before we got into season four. So today we're looking at season one. Yeah, we've heard that season four is supposed to be released in just a couple of months, I think on October 6th. And it's been a little bit of time since season three had aired and since all of us have seen uh, seasons one and two. So we just wanted to go over this once again, talk about some of our favorite moments and favorite episodes, and make sure that we're going into season four prepared. I felt like I was surprised at how much I had forgotten from the previous seasons. I kind of remember all of like the the broad strokes about it, but there are a lot of like little details that I'd forgotten about, and also some things that become more obvious once you see it again for the second time. There are some plot twists where it mystifies me now how I didn't see it until it was revealed, but I never see them coming. Not ever. That's another you know, so good because I plant the seeds like the whole season and then it finally pays off at the end. In um, some of the crossovers we've done with us, with other, in some of the crossovers we've done with other Mr. Robot podcasters, I think all but one of them said that none of their predictions were ever correct and that they're all kind of going back and doing this review of all the things that have passed because we've come a long way since Ron's coffee, right? Yeah, no kidding. I feel like not only has the story evolved a lot over time, but it's also kind of um, twisted like what genre the show itself belongs to. Well, because I think there are different points where it's not really certain what genre it should belong to like is it a sci-fi show or a crime show or a thriller is it about activism like it's really they cast the net wide i think and i think that's one of the things that makes this show appeal to so many different kinds of viewers so today we're supposed to be talking about season one and in this one i find that it was more about um the technical aspects of the things that elliot does like there are more hacking scenes um it also kind of establishes what elliot's motives are and the characters who he's related to and, and what the ultimate goals are for the series but i was wondering um what did you feel were kind of the themes or tangents that season one explored i think you're right i think it sets out the framework for it because I mean, there's that first episode where I just have in my notes, because it's really a catch-all where they're trying to introduce all these characters to you. They're trying to introduce, do a little bit of, you know... I mean, it's not so much world-building because it really is set in kind of real time, uh, set in New York. But we do get the big themes. I mean, right away, that whole... um, The concept of the 1%, the concept about uh, war is supposed to be ongoing and profitable, the concept of debt being like indentured servitude that you never escape from all those things are established in the first few episodes yeah and when it comes to the the one percent i think that they show that in actually the very first scene of the show when you kind of have the silhouettes of all the characters and their nefarious meeting um and you realize eventually one of those characters is tyrell tyrell i I have to say has had one of the most interesting evolutions I think he's one of the characters, maybe him and Angela, who are the most different by the end of season three. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And the trajectory he took is kind of the opposite of the one that I expected him to have based on the character's um, like introduction to the series in season one. And also the fact that um, they seem to be inspired by um, American Psycho. 
So the character kind of already had some expectations from me going into it, and then it was interesting to see how they subverted all of those and went a totally different direction. I think you hit on something with the American Psycho piece, because at first that character seems to me like a kind of two-dimensional referential character, right? We're calling very clear, even physical almost resemblances to the Patrick Bateman character in the the movie uh, portrayal of American Psycho. But it becomes so much more interesting and so much more complicated. And so I don't have any major notes for episode one. It just seems like that's where they really, they even introduce QWERTY. Like they just get the whole cast like in that episode. Um, But the second episode has some really amazing writing. I actually think the writing is kind of the snappiest in season one. Um, Because this episode has lines like, give a man a bank and he can rob the world, you know, or power belongs to those that take it. Like It has all these really memorable, really sharp turns of phrase in it. And uh, this might actually even be my favorite episode of this season. It's also, I think, the beginning of the Tyrellian fan fiction. I think that's where this is established. Uh, And it has the first F Society video, which I think is... That's a really fun storytelling device that they use throughout, and I I really look forward to any time we got to see those. You know, it's kind of been a while, and I wonder if we'll start to see more of those in season four. Not to get off on a a tangent about that, though. We can talk about that when it starts. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, because remember how confusing it is at the beginning that Darlene knows how to get into his house and where all this stuff is and stuff? (laughs) I was kind of thinking about that, because it seems like in some ways... um, they do make the twists a little obvious, but you can only really say that with retrospects. And um, part of what they do is like they, they plant the seeds for it, but they also misdirect you from it. So you wouldn't really know to even think about those things unless you had a reason to be looking for them. I think, too, they introduce some characters in season one that I don't think are going to be important who become important. So Cisco is one of those characters. Like to me, he just seems like this is horrible some kind of patsy who's just like in love with darlene and then she accesses stuff through him but he actually becomes kind of a thoughtful counterpoint to her as we get into season three so he gets more interesting and then i guess what remains to be seen is how vera's story arc is going to end and i thought it had ended no it doesn't seem to be the case um do you want to get into episode three we can talk more about that into the Tyrell episode one, Tyrell episode the first, <laughs> Tyrell episode prime. I don't know what we want to call that one. <laughs> that one works. This is this is really what you're talking about. You're talking about the American Psycho style Tyrell. Yeah. I remember being really um, impacted when I watched this scene because it's really hard to get through, to be honest. Yeah. So this is where Tyrell is still obsessing about his own version of Angela's affirmations, where he's paying to uh, violently assault uh, homeless people. Like, there's no... He- I have no empathy or interest, really, in the character at this point in the series. It's so interesting how that changed for me. Yeah. And um, another thing that they do in this episode that kind of goes to show you how cold Tyrell is is that he um, hacks somebody by seducing them, if you remember that part, too. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> that was a little strange for me to see. Um, and you were talking about um, Cisco being like a bit of a patsy, but in this episode, um, we find out that that's kind of uh, Ollie <laughs> in actuality, and Cisco actually uh, manipulates him a bit to start uh, 
the Dark Army's plans. It's easy to forget about Ollie, and we're all glad to do that uh, when we're able to, but we forget that Cisco is the one who hands him the CD that gets all of this kicked off. Did you like his social engineering trick with the um, album that he was releasing or whatever? <laughs> I do. And it's funny because in New York, that happens all the time. Like, I remember people offering me their CDs and just saying, no, thank you. Yeah. Well, we were just in um, Las Vegas for DEF CON and we saw some people do that there, too. You don't really see it that much in Toronto, though. No, this does not seem to be a Toronto thing. Our music scene is not very well-developed. <laughs> well, or maybe it's just all online. <laughs> or maybe we're a little style, like passive-aggressive and unconfrontational. Maybe. Very un-New... No, Toronto's as confrontational as New York. That's a debatable point. People can give us their feedback about that. In this episode, I feel like there's a scene that explains Angela's whole character to me, but I don't... I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. It's where, you know, someone um, is jogging and they drop their wallet and she picks it up and gives it back. And so she, that person turns out to be a thief who had stolen that wallet and she through her, the goodness of her heart aided and abetted that person wow that's angela yeah well you could say that that happens later in the season and we'll have a chance to talk about that too but there is some really good foreshadowing about how the fact that sometimes angela despite her best intention could actually make the situation worse for some people i find there's so many little things and i don't know if it's just as you know a self-fulfilling prophecy or looking back i want to construct it this way but it seems like they all things carefully build on each other um, we do get the uncomfortable S&M scenes <laughs> that happens in this season. Um, and the introduction of Joanna, who, of course, is a very powerful force through this season and season two. I really missed Joanna when I was watching this season because she was one of my favorite characters, even though she's obviously like a, a bit of an asshole. But I just liked her. She was like a good kind of asshole. I read an interview with uh, Stephanie Cornelius and where apparently she got kind of short notice that the character was going to be killed. So it wasn't something. And maybe they wanted the actor to kind of be surprised by it and bring that to her, her portrayal. But I guess it wasn't well known long before that they were just going to that she was going to be murdered. So it's kind of interesting to think about that too. There are season one, I think, focuses more on Elliot's ongoing substance use issues. And those kind of recede into the background, I think, as we get into season three, where I think he's kind of well again or as well as Elliot is going to get um, during the course of all of these horrible things happening around him. And so that kind of fades into the background, but it's really front and center here, you know, when he like meets Shayla and all of those things. I noticed that too. And I thought that it was one of the. Um like the themes of the story that I found interesting. There is another show also called um, Fear the Walking Dead, like that Walking Dead spinoff show, where the main character has um, a problem with like opioids at the beginning of the season. And I find that oftentimes they introduce those characters who have like those traits. And then within the first few episodes, or at least like within the first season, they kind of like get over it and it's never mentioned again, <laughs> even though it's something that you think would be um, more of like a core part of their identity as the series goes on. Because I think you're right that um, once Elliot kind of solves this issue in the first season, it never really comes up again. We do get, though, and I think I'm looking at episode four here. Um, it does become a good vehicle for certain kinds of experimental storytelling that the show uses. So when we have that that withdrawal dream sequence, you know, with the whole um, 
find your monster and turn the key. Yeah, that was one of like the strangest uh, sequences for me, and it still is really unnerving to go back and watch that again. Another thing it does is it kind of um, establishes Elliot as an unreliable narrator, and when he has these intense hallucinations, it sets you up to think about um, like his relationships with um, Mr. Robot. Yeah, like it, it makes you think that hallucinations are something that he's capable of and that you can't really trust his own perception of things. I think, too, there are so many things that are sublimated into it. And we're going to s- come to it again when we talk about the 80s sitcom episode in season two. But there's a point in this kind of dream sequence where Angela says, you know, how would you know you were only born a month ago? And later, when we understand that Mr. Robot has kind of just reappeared to him about a month ago, you know, the pieces all fit, but it all seems very surreal and mysterious the first time you view it. Uh, episode five brings us Sam Sepiol and the wor- and the world's most awkward business lunch. <laughs> that was one of my favorite episodes this season. It might actually be my favorite. It's actually on my shortlist, too, that one, um, because this is Elliot really having to step up and out of his comfort zone to pull off a fairly complex social engineering hack yeah i think you're right and um in the ron's coffee scene he talks about how normally when he's doing any kinds of hack he does it um online he doesn't really like to be physically confronted in fact in parts because that's um will be more dangerous for him if he ends up being caught and he has these issues of social anxiety that make you think that he wouldn't really be a competent social engineer but we see that um he actually is uh, pretty talented at that I think one of the hardest scenes to watch in this series maybe is when, and this is sort of ends justifying the means moment is when he just lays into that poor guy whose name I don't remember who's giving him the tour and just tears into shreds. I, I feel bad for laughing at that, but it was honestly just so like over the top that it felt a little cheesy to me. Well, what was it? <laughs> it's, he says something like, I hope your funeral isn't well attended. <laughs> yeah. I remember laughing at that when we recorded the episode about it, too. Because he obviously doesn't really know how to tear someone <laughs> apart. So you see both of them struggling with it. It's it's a truly uncomfortable moment. Um, I think this whole episode is really uncomfortable. This is also where the Wellicks go to dinner at the Knowles house. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do remember that being super uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but you can kind of see that it's one of those things where it's like um, a professional formality. But both of them really know that um, they're they're not really on the same side here. Like, it's inherently adversarial. And that makes there be a lot of tension when you're just seeing them eat dinner together. But know that on the inside, they're planning how to take each other down. This I think it's established shortly before this that Darlene is the contact to the Dark Army, so the Chinese equivalent of F Society, which equivalent maybe isn't fair because they seem much more sophisticated, uh, bigger, and better resourced. But um, they want to back out of what eventually becomes the 5-9 hack at this point. So the whole plot is kind of destabilized in this episode, which is kind of fun too. The Vera storyline starts to escalate once they get into the next episode, because remember, it starts where they abduct Shayla out of the diner. Yeah, that scene seemed really surreal to me because it kind of um, came out of nowhere. It does. And we also get Vera's escape from prison in this season. So this is, I think we see Elliot as someone who wants to use hacking for the purposes of good or to move a social cause forward. And so we see him called upon to use his skills 
in a way he might not consider ethical to try to save someone he cares about. And so I think that's interesting to put that character in that situation and see how it evolves. We also have big storylines in this episode for Angela, because this is where she's ramping up her legal case, meeting with a lawyer and really trying to probe into the Washington Township plant scandal that was the cause of death for both her mom and Elliot's dad. And this is also like prime Lady Macbeth time for Joanna, because this is uh, this is the pickle fork this is <laughs> this is the all that you know kind of um i don't even know how to describe it because she is she is the puppet master uh and i think we start to see that really clearly and how far she'll go to achieve this goal i don't know if you mentioned it on the podcast but once as like a gift or souvenir aaron gave the whole mystery watch team pickle forks <laughs> and i still think of that every time i had them i found them I bought pickle forks and I put them in my closet for six months and waited for Christmas, but I was so excited. <laughs> so it, they almost didn't make it. <laughs> I do think you're right about Joanna though. And, um, and the way I was saying that Tyrell is set up to be a, a sort of um, American psycho character, you can see that their storylines do also um, uh, integrate the sort of Macbeth storyline. That story doesn't end very well either for anyone who uh, <laughs> <laughs> or ever read that play. At this point, uh, the first person to try to bail is Romero. And maybe that's because he's a little bit older. He seems a little bit more cynical um, than the rest of the team. Uh, he wants to quit, but I don't think Mr. Robot's going to let that happen. We do get some insight into the motivation of some of the... I don't want to call them more peripheral F Society characters, but we get some insight into Romero's thinking here and also into uh, what drives Trenton. Mm -hmm. I like how, at least with these um, main F Society characters, they do dedicate a bit of time exploring what their motivations are, um, both and why they feel the way that they do and that they need to hack the financial system and also what they hope to gain from it. Um, as F Society expanded a bunch in the later seasons, you didn't really get that much depth into each member of it, and they became to be a lot of like um, background characters and foot soldiers. But right now, they have a really tight-knit group, and you can really understand all of them as characters individually. I think you get a sense here of Darlene's drive and how far she will go to try to achieve what she sees as liberation for people. And Cisco has a really good line in this episode where he says, you know, I would tell you to be careful, but that's the last thing you're going to be. And I think we get to see that proven over and over and over again. Yeah, that's fair to say. One uh, piece of the story that I think we've, we haven't touched on too much is also the Terry Colby piece. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you could say that his um, framing and like the trial and that or whatever is one of the um, underlying narratives of this entire season. We see here, too, he is a really horrible man. And I don't really understand how he's risen to the level he has because I don't know what you think. He doesn't seem like that sophisticated a player to me. No, I think that's generational wealth, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's some... Uh, inherited cultural capital that we're, uh, we're talking about. One character who's really consistently wonderful, though, if I could put the counterpoint, is uh, Gideon Goddard. Oh, yeah, totally. Although um, he seems like a little too nosy sometimes. <laughs> oh, he's like, yeah, like your guidance counselor who cares too much. <laughs> That's Gideon Goddard. Um, aside from his awkward dinner party, 
we get a lot of awkward dinner parties in this series i guess yeah um, i guess like the dinner parties in mr robot are like the desert and breaking bad where it's where all of like the political shit goes down <laughs> i was trying to remember i missed it though in reviewing where the fantasy dinner party takes place you know where they see the buildings crumbling down in the background i don't really remember either okay maybe maybe something will jog our memory but as we're getting into later episodes like episode eight um Sharon Knoll's body is found by that point and so the for us the viewers who we know that Tyrell I don't think he intended to kill her on that roof do you no I don't think so I think that it's something where he was just kind of um taken over by his rage and self-destructive tendencies so he's gone too far and now this is going to cause endless complications I think he might know too that he's on kind of thin ice with Joanna at this point yeah you could say that not as clearly as she'll make him know later but it's shaky and so this is just causing her a lot more work than i think she wanted now here's a question for you so you know there's a scene where ollie stupid ollie hands elliot the drives and he says you got to go drop these off for me these drives have to be repaired it's important just go right now don't be late do you think elliot knows what's happening i think that he knows because um it's something that's a little out of the ordinary Maybe he knows also that um, he's expecting to be contacted in some ways. So he mentions, in fact, to Ollie that there's somebody else who should be doing this. He probably realizes that there's some specific reason why Ollie would do it a, a different, unexpected way. And I can't imagine that Ollie would know anything about it. Like, he wouldn't know about White Rose, and he wouldn't know about Dark Army, or no. that this meeting's all a setup, would he? I doubt it. And I kind of also wonder, because it seems like the Dark Army would kind of... Um, try and give him as little information as possible but then it makes you wonder what leverage they have over him we saw that um with cisco they've went up to uh physically torturing him so i kind of wonder if ollie had ever experienced something like that because they don't um his character doesn't really face a lot of troubles in the series except for like getting dumped by angela and um it makes me wonder if how he would um handle like a company as brutal as the dark army that's why I've got to think that he's just a clueless patsy in this. Like, But he has so much urgency about passing it off to Elliot. It just makes me wonder what he knows or doesn't know. Although my default is to suspect that Ollie never knows anything. <laughs> well, I guess that's in everybody's best interest, too. Yeah, really. Uh, this is also the first setting of Hamburger Man. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you, Hamburger Man. We're still trying to get him to tweet at us. We would have an episode dedicated to hamburger man so if you're hamburger man whose name i forget right now your actual human name please reach out to us on the internet we uh are fascinated by your um character with no spoken lines now we do there is some more um ramping up the angela storyline speaking of the ollie connection um so she she seems so helpless and so naive to me at first. And so this is where she quits her job and then tries to go to work for the lawyer who's handling the Washington Township plant case. But that doesn't pan out for her. No, it kind of makes you think that she should have planned that out a little bit more. <laughs> and in fairness, I think she's right when she says she's not going to be employable in that industry again after she's admitted to... Has she admitted to making a mistake or why does she think that she's blacklisted? I think that at that point she was um, talking about saying that the chain of custody or whatever was broken with regards to the Terry Colby dad file. 
That's right. That's right. So that's why she's in hot water and why she's probably not considered to be at the top of any headhunters uh, recruitment list. Uh, speaking of other people losing their employment, so this is where Tyrell really does get put on notice by Joanna. So remember, this is the weirdest scene to me. Do you remember the scene with her in the hospital after she has the baby? Yeah, yeah, I do. And there was a bit of like um, exposition about Joanna's character there. I wish they would have went into more depth about it, though. I wish they would have had a bit more time because I do have to wonder, you know, what makes Joanna the person she is and what puts her in the position that she finds herself in because it seems like her ambitions are all pegged to Tyrell. But, I mean, that can't come out of nowhere. I have so many unanswered questions I think about her backstory. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that maybe she sees Tyrell as like um, a vehicle she can use to uh, achieve like these grand uh, ambitions that she has, kind of like wearing some kind of fancy mech suit. <laughs> Do you think she legitimately cares about him or for him? That's really hard to say. Um, I feel like in this scene, she definitely doesn't give you that impression. <laughs> <laughs> no, she definitely does not. And this is really just the start of Tyrell's bad news because then he gets called into a meeting with Price. Oh, yeah. And this was like a really, really big, impactful scene. I especially love the soundtrack in it. It made me download the entire uh, album to listen to. It's funny. I was reading something recently and said if you're watching something you think is going to be scary to put it on mute and read the captions. Oh, yeah. Because so much of that terror is from the score and matt quayle really does a good job at bringing that i think to the forefront in this show yeah absolutely so tyrell gets fired so not only is he not going to be the youngest cto he's just not going to be cto at all and i think especially after the hearing that joanna doesn't really want anything to do with him anymore uh, and then he's under a lot of pressure from her to fix the whole sharon knoll situation that losing that other piece of his identity I mean, that's got to have an impact on somebody. Yeah, it seems like Joanna doesn't have a lot of patience. And on Tyrell's part, he's really complicated the situation much more than he intended to. Because um, he brought suspicion onto both of them with the um, uh, murder of Sharon Knowles. And then that kind of escalated. Or rather, I wouldn't call it escalating from murder. But it led to his getting fired. Do you think that Philip Price always acts more aggressively than required? <laughs> I really liked Philip Price in this scene, to be honest. I especially liked how um, when they first like sit down and they're talking about Sharon Knowles, Tyrell starts saying, like, my heart goes out to them, and Price just cuts him off, and he's like, oh, yeah, 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 because um, they both know that that's just, like, a formality, and he's really trying to just get down to business and not to have any small talk. It just seems so cruel to me when he says to Tyrell, who, you know, is not an honorable person in this situation, but when he says... You know, I played out this moment in my mind and all the different ways it could go. And even given that, I'm still disappointed in how you <laughs> reacted. That's such an eloquent burn. Um, but yeah, like knowing how much um, Tyrell has to lose in this situation and also knowing how much of his identity is tied to his job and his status. Um, this really has some big impacts for his character. I think you're right about that because I think if Tyrell had not had such serious blows to his status and the way he considered himself, then what's his incentive to go work for F Society in the Dark Army? He has none. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that um, when we first saw Tyrell and were introduced to him, we never would have thought that he would work with that society. No, I think that pivot is really great. And the simultaneous pivot is that Terry Colby offers Angela a job at E Corp, the company she's given up her career to destroy. And she's really smart here. This is probably the first time I start to see her as sort of a shrewd person or a person who's got some ambition of her own because she is really pointed about asking Colby what's the real ask here what's really going on yeah these are some hints that she's kind of starting to play the same political game that the other characters are this season is sort of like a non-stop pressure cooker I feel like there's something terrible happening every moment this season (laughs) yeah seriously and um, there's also so much um, suspense because you kind of know that there's about to be a twist, but you don't really know how it's going to come down. You really don't. And so we kind of close out this season. We meet Krista's dirtbag boyfriend, Michael something. Hanson. Hanson, uh, Flipper's original uh, owner. Um, so they, they're kind of introduced to us. I don't think Michael Hansen really has any particular role. No, I wouldn't say so. He kind of just is like a a side character to the Krista storyline. Uh, we do, uh, we do see the, um, suicide on live television and Angela, we actually see Price kind of trying to take care of Angela a little bit after she witnesses that in his weird Price-like way. (laughs) Yeah. So some people who um, had watched this episode started to develop the theory that Angela and Price might be related. I didn't think that like he was treating her more nicely than anybody else would have, but because um, he kind of singled her out for somebody who could use um, assistance after seeing something like that and inviting um, her to his party later, um, I guess that was uh, hints enough to some people that he was trying to take care of her. Well, I think just because he's so cold and so horrible to everyone else that even the tiny bits of kindness he doles out to her seem like a lot. Yeah, but also his kindness is so, like, mechanized and emotionless. Um, Like, the way that he supports her is to give him ready to buy new shoes. That shoe store scene is pretty cold. That's, like, some Joanna (laughs) level cold. (laughs) That's one of my favorite scenes from the whole season. Because, like, you just don't really expect that you're going to see Angela turn into the person that she does. I think, too, once we know what we know at the end of season three, all of these little, there's so much foreshadowing about the Angela Price connection, and you don't put it together until, what, the last episode of the third season, but now it makes sense. Yeah. It's another one of those things that are kind of giving hints all along, but you wouldn't really have a reason to suspect it. Are there any other big points from the season? Well, there are two big points that we kind of um, glossed over a bit, which are the two twists about the relationship with Darlene and the relationship with Mr. Robot. Oh, right. No, those. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that those are especially important for our own podcast because I remember you texting me about the um, Darlene relationship because we don't talk about this very much on the podcast, but Aaron and I are also brother and sister. So that was something that we related to in that episode. Well, it's so funny because, of course, you know, it helps you connect why she's so familiar with him, why she knows where he keeps things in his apartment, why she might have access to it. All those overly familiar things all make sense. 
And the Mr. Robot twist is so shocked. Actually, I felt less shocked by that, maybe because the Darlene twist has already happened. Yeah, we said the same thing when we recorded those episodes, too. <laughs> to me, it felt like they kind of um, put those things too close together. So the first one diminished the impact of the second one a bit. Because it was kind of like the first one was like a revelation where um, the reveal is that the person's actually your family member. And then it seemed like they immediately tried to one up that by being like, this person's also your family member. And this time they're dead. <laughs> they're just like doing the same thing, but dialed up a little more. It was. And yeah, we're all a big unhappy family. <laughs> uh, it's it, the intensity. I think you're right. I think if they had been spaced out more in time, it, it might have been more impactful is not a word but i'll use it anyway but it also i think establishes how much um elliot has distanced himself from reality that he doesn't have the information that he needs to connect those pieces until that really shocking moment with darlene and then is it the blank cd that's mr robot yeah i think so yeah if i remember right I do want to ask, also, of course, because producer Dave is in the room, what was your favorite episode of the season? My favorite episode was uh, episode six. Uh, that's the one where he breaks Vera out of jail. Oh, the jailbreak um, episode. Yeah. Um, basically, because what happens, what I think that episode does for the season and then the series is that it establishes a lot of plot lines, like the uh, the toxic waste uh was that lawsuit that Angela wants to file against E Corp? You get an understanding of like, oh, she was affected by it. Ellie was affected by it. Uh, this is like an overarching theme that kind of exists throughout the rest of the season. Um, you see that Elliot's willing to like shift his morals and his ethics to help somebody he cares about in breaking Vera out of jail so that he can save Shayla. Uh, which she ends up dead at the end of the episode, so it's kind of for naught. And you get to see a sense of like the true villainous nature of Vera, who becomes quite the antagonist later. Well, because, of course, after revealing that they've killed Shayla, he turns around and shoots his own brother. Yeah, brutal. Yeah. Um, that, that, that does kind of set up the tone for this series, because it's kind of like the women in refrigerator moments except it's a chunk instead um for me that that episode was like a real turning point to be honest because um it seems kind of crazy to think about it now um seeing what we've seen with like all of the dark horrible twisted stuff the um grotesque violence that happens in later later seasons um but this was the first episode where a main character or i think anybody died and um until that point, like, it wasn't really known that this was the kind of series that people died in, if you know what I mean. Like, there are a lot of drama series that are um, full of tension, that have a lot of interesting twists and turns. But the worst that would happen is, like, somebody going to jail. We talked about um, Homecoming, for example, which shares a lot of um, similarities with Mr. Robot, but it doesn't really have the same level of violence in it. And this was the first episode where somebody dies, and you realize that... Um, that level of violence is something that's on the table and something that you kind of need to be afraid of going forward. Yeah, I think there is. Um, it really establishes the theme of loss too, because he like he cares about Shayla and he loses Shayla, and you you get a sense of that through the rest of the season that like Elliot is going to keep losing the people that are close to him. Yeah, and that's kind of a theme that's just like kind of thrown back in our face over and over and over again throughout the series. And I mean that does set it up well for season two, which is like murder season. So. Yeah, it really just kind of uh, takes off from there. Another thing that happens in this episode is it's the one where Joanne convinces Tyrell that he has to 
kill uh, Knowles' wife. Right. He doesn't kill the wife in this episode, but she, Joanna convinces him that he has to do something about her. Oh. At that point, he's still trying to seduce her, right? But he's failed. I th- Is that right? No, they haven't. They've already had the awkward dinner, and that's okay. where Joanna says, like, she's the weak point to know Ah, right. And then, so she's like, you have to do something about her. Mm-hmm. And so I think as an audience, we're like, oh, he's supposed to seduce her because we see him seduce someone else earlier. Right. And then in the next episode, he goes too far. True. But I don't think Joanna cares that he goes too far. No, she doesn't really seem to. And that does kind of make it seem a little more um, premeditated. And you can consider that, like, Joanna probably might be willing to um, use those kind of tactics and dirty tricks to further her own uh, goals. Oh, I have no doubt. And you're right. That opens the door to sort of seeing her as a more fully villainous character. Because I think initially we have the idea that Tyrell is the one who pulls the strings. Remember, us is me. Right, so we almost think she's in a supporting role, and I think you're right. This is what makes it clear that if anyone is driving the bus, it is Joanna. He's just along for the ride. Yeah, and it, it really establishes Tyrell's character of being kind of a pushover, because then, I'm not going to talk too much about season two, but in season two, we really see his willingness to like be underneath somebody in terms of like being told what to do and what to accomplish. Absolutely. And so, yes, I think we'll have much more to say on Tyrell's evolution. In the coming episodes. Any last thoughts on season one? Season one is personally my favorite season, so I was glad to have a chance to go over it and talk about it in a little more depth. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm excited for season two now. I also just know that the genre has always changed so much between the seasons, and it's going to be a total different thing when we talk about it next. This season really did cement me as a viewer. This probably, just the description of the show alone wouldn't be the kind of show I would normally have turned on myself to watch. So when you recommended it to me, I don't even think I did watch it for a few weeks. But it reels you in and they do a really good job of getting you hooked on these characters and the story right away. So season one is, I mean, a very strong season and I also enjoyed rewatching it. I enjoyed it too. I didn't watch it until after we recorded season one of this podcast. <laughs> That's right. There must have been a lot of spoilers. Uh, I don't believe in spoilers, but it 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 was really fun watching it and then being like, oh, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel when I watch like an old Alfred Hitchcock movie for the first time and I realize all of the references on The Simpsons that they made about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here we are, Mr. Rewatch, connecting the dots. This is our recap of season one. We are recording today in Hamilton, Ontario, and we really appreciate you listening. Keep listening for more content from us from now through the end of the year. Thank you for listening to Mr. Rewatch. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. And I'm Dave. Bonsoir.